Hi there, and welcome to Meet Me in the Middle, the podcast that seeks to find the middle ground within the wellness world. I'm Annika Buckle. I'm Danny Omani. And I'm Lee Freiling. All right, y'all. I am super excited about our conversation this week because it's a biggie. This week, we're going to talk about (laughs) self-care. Oh, no. (laughs) So, uh, listener, this all started with a conversation on what was actually kind of a footnote at the end of one of our collective favorite podcasts, Holla Maintenance Phase, um, when they touched on the origins of self-care. And um, turns out the whole topic is a bit more problematic than I think a lot of us know. So specifically today, we're going to dig into what happens when we ask the question, who made self-care possible for you? And we mean this in a very historical way, not like my partner took the kids or my boss gave me Friday off. (laughs) Um, So before we dive into this, I will, um, I'll let you ladies speak for yourselves on this, but I'm going to speak just for me and my own experience. I know I have absolutely leaned right into using self-care as a marketing technique in the past, So I just want to open with my own recognition and acknowledgement of where I may have inadvertently caused harm and absolutely not done due due diligence of where things come from or what they mean. You know, like I would run a self-care night where the solutions were things to buy from me and from others and where I absolutely know that people can and should have nice, fun things. We're allowed to have joy. We're allowed to look after ourselves. We're allowed to gather in community. I do want to apologize for my part in what I now recognize as pushing individual solutions to collective problems. And we'll talk about that specific little nugget more in a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I echo literally exactly everything that you said. I have done the exact same thing. Um, I even created a whole course and like marketed it around sort of this, this concept of like deep self-care, not just from like a, you know, masks and foot baths kind of capacity, but like self-care from like a, a, a far more sort of like uh, functional um, space. And again, while that is all good, Um, I also appreciate that there was some real capitalism behind it. And um, again, you know, offering like exactly what you said, offering individual individualistic um, solutions to something that's more of a societal um, or systematic sort of issue. This, this conversation for me is really um, important because when I was listening to that episode of maintenance phase, which I believe was the goop episode. So if you all, um, first of all, if you're not listening to maintenance phase, I don't know what you're doing with your life because, oh my gosh, get on the bus. <laughs> and second of all, um, that particular episode, it really was kind of just like a footnote, less this historical reference to where self-care came from. And when I listened to it, it blew my mind. And I was just like, oh my gosh, I had this similar, I had a similar to feeling to when I realized like, and this is going to sound awful, but using the term gypped was like a really terrible Mm-hmm. really terrible term. I was like, Oh, I had no idea. So anyways, I also just want to recognize, like I've been a part of the issue and hopefully today's discussion will rectify a bit of that. I mean, I'm a middle-class white woman who used to be a part of the wellness world. So mm-hmm. <laughs> guilty as charged. And actually it's funny. I get a horrid reminder of it every time I get like a Instagram or like a Facebook memory or like a uh-huh. archived thing, I'm like, Oh fuck. And, mm-hmm. it, and it, for me, a lot of it showed up. Yes. In terms of like selling, um, capitalized 
um, capitalism, monetization, like all that stuff. Um, and also, um, in sort of weaving that into like my, today I'm having self-care by doing this thing that I can do because I have access to things that other people don't have access to. Uh-huh. And yep. like sharing uh-huh. that as if like, you want my lifestyle. So buy these things for me. So I'd mm-hmm. like to thank Facebook for cruelly reminding me of that. And now like the memories go back. Like I used to once it's been more than two years since I sort of was a part of that. And I was like, finally, these like stupid memories have like timed out. And now they give me three year reminders <laughs> of like things. And it's all, it's funny. Cause it's all stuff pushed from Instagram. Cause I don't actually use Facebook, but anyways, whatever. So yes, guilty is charged hundred um, percent. Okay. Awesome. Thanks y'all. I'm happy we can kind of clear that and recognize and acknowledge our own very complicated history with this before we even get started. <laughs> But let's dive in. So as we talk about the history of self-care, really kind of the origins of what we're going to be talking about today starts in the 1950s as a medical concept. It was specifically used first in mental hospitals for institutionalized patients, which I had no idea about. (laughs) The emphasis being the practice of self-care to regain self-worth. As funny as it might sound now, things like exercising or personal grooming or learning to eat well actually came from the medical world. True story. (laughs) Okay. I actually didn't think they were that progressive in terms of mental health in the fifties. Never mind, like now, but like in the fifties. Huh. Don't worry. It's still problematic. We'll get to it. Yeah. I thought they were still like using um air quotes institutionalized people for like study subjects then. Mm-hmm. But I can understand where they're coming from in that regard, because one of the, like, for example, if you're dealing with someone who's got major depression, you know what I mean? They probably are having an incredibly hard time doing basic hygiene, basic getting out of bed, basic movement, basic, all this kind of stuff, which only compounds a lot of the sort of feelings of <clears throat> worthlessness and hopelessness. And so I can appreciate from sort of viewing it through the lens of like, how is it that we can actually help these people? Some of the very most fundamental things that they're missing um, to be titled self-care. I mean, that's really what it is, right? An aspect of, you know, especially deep depression is that you stop caring for yourself in mm-hmm. those ways, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I can get it. I can get where they're coming from. That's my point. Yeah. And I mean, let's be really clear about who these policies were directed at. It was at white, rich men primarily, right? How do we get this guy that's just having a bad time back on his feet? Because absolutely, that is not the treatment for um, communities of color, um, people who had different gender identities or sexualities, women, and that's kind of where this kind of turns next. So from there really, you know, kind of as we think of self-care today, launches in a big way with the civil rights movement, and then also within second wave feminism in the 60s and 70s. So it was initially a response to the acknowledgement that traditional medicine was not designed to serve very specific types of bodies, black bodies, women's bodies, etc. The personal became political to turn a feminist phrase. Self-care was claiming ownership of your body as a political act to correct the failures of a very racist, very sexist medical institution. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, and again, like if we can keep, I mean, we in the greater we or they in the greater they like can keep 
um, you know, these sort of oppressed populations on the struggle bus, which obviously they were slash are, right? It would be a really radical act to kind of say, no, I'm going to get to a space where I'm thriving, despite your lack of help, despite your support, despite your willingness to recognize that I was really struggling and needed some needed some help, right? I mean, one of the easiest ways to sort of keep keep a keep a people down is to make sure their most fundamental operation is compromised. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And that's exactly kind of how this emerges. Self-care became a core part of the community care that launched during the civil rights movement. Thanks primarily to the Black Panther movement in particular, because they realized that to keep up momentum, they had to literally take care of their group. Mm-hmm. Black communities so often lacked access to basic healthcare and social services. And so community care became not just a nice idea, but like literally essential to survival. So within this organizing self slash community care, wasn't just like a nice extra, like meditating, but actually really hands-on like clinics to test for things like lead poisoning and sickle cell anemia, really tackling illness and disease that was particularly rampant in the black community, as well as providing really basic preventative health care at its inception, at its inception with an activist community, self-care was really basic, simple health care. Yeah. And this was the part that really, really blew my mind, right? This was the sort of part of history that I had no clue about, which, you know, again, I'm like a, a privileged white lady. So like necessarily where would it, where would I have learned about this? But to recognize that, you know, it really was that civil, the civil rights Black Panther sort of taking back and saying like, okay, well, if you're not going to do it, then we will. <sighs> yeah. It, it blew my mind, especially considering how <laughs> where self-care is at today real <laughs> real different place real different place uh-huh uh-huh yeah and I mean as we're kind of talking about this origin piece I also want to take a minute just to call out that these racial gendered and class lines drawn around medical and community services absolutely still exist today services are far more often restricted in communities where members of a minority group live due to social legal or economic pressure I will once again remind y'all that to this day, we have more than 70 First Nations communities in Canada that literally don't have clean drinking water. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, no, not okay. So we'll talk in more detail about community care in a minute, but first let's talk about the way that self-care kind of evolved within the women's movement. So a lot of second wave feminists and activists took a page from the Black Panthers. I mean, honestly, (laughs) the Black Panthers impact on modern day activism could probably be a whole episode honestly but um starting so they started to kind of dig into this idea that poverty was correlated with poor health therefore to dismantle the hierarchies that led to this women people of color other minorities must be able to live healthy lives right a part of this connection and i would say a huge part um, was the work of Audre Lorde, a Black civil rights activist, writer, lesbian, and feminist, who, if you haven't heard of, um, get your Google on. <laughs> She's pretty <laughs> important. Um, if you haven't read her collection of essays called A Burst of Light, it's a beautiful introduction. It's excellent. Um, and one of her most famous quotes uh, comes out of this book uh, as we talk about self-care. Quote, caring for myself is not self-indulgence. It is self-preservation, and that is an act of political warfare, end quote. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm with this. Yes. Continue. Good. So into the late 70s and 80s, we start to see a conflation of self-care with the concept of wellness and that idea being positive health rather than just the absence of illness. This probably starts to look a little bit more like what we're familiar with around the wellness world today. But what I found really interesting is this is where we really start to see the veer away from its original medical roots. These early champions of the idea of quote unquote wellness cited their disappointment with mainstream Western quote unquote doctors to help them with specific injuries or illnesses, driving them to explore wellness as literally for a lot of people in the early days of last resort. Out of this, there was then an evangelicalization. It's my um, word does not want that to be a word, but I really like it as a word. <laughs> there was an I'm evangelicalization uh, of, what's that word. I like of what's become <laughs> right. It's so good um, of what's become an enduring concept of self care that our own minds, bodies, and nature, rather than experts or other traditional treatments, hold the key to our optimal health and happiness. Feels pretty familiar, right? So, the shift into self care as wellness marked the beginning of a new era for self care, one that disassociated it even further from this political origin and pulled it even deeper into capitalism. Capitalism. We see the rise of mainstreaming of fitness with Jane Fonda and Jazzercise, and we see it continue with things like moms in the school pickup line wearing athleisure and giant corporations touting wellness, the wellness centers at their offices, right? This is, I think, one of the things I didn't realize before we started having this conversation is how much the modern wellness world came out of these self-care origins. Mm-hmm. And you say it sort of like shifted away from po- its political origin, but it, it's kind of become political again. Do you know what I mean? Just in a, a just totally. a different way. It's the same principles, distrust of government. The government's not going to look after me, but it's coming from, it's like there was one group that legitimately was not being taken care of by the government. And now it's this, this optics of um, that sort of libertarian group where there should be no, the government's not going to look after me. I have to look after myself. The grid is going to go down like this whole sort of profound distrust in larger institutions, political or particularly um, like government funded or participated institutions. So it's actually totally become political again in a lot of ways on the extreme end. And then of course there's like everything in between. Mm-hmm. in its current day state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. And actually kind of along those lines, what I find really interesting is two points in American history specifically, because of course, you know, that's assumed to be most of the world history and where most of the things that I read come out of, but two of the points where the term self-care became like there was a huge Google spike in people looking for it was one right after 9-11 in 2000. And then also uh, right after uh, Trump became president in 2016. Huh. Huh. Well, mm -hmm. I can understand that. Gosh. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, look, this is the other thing I think as we talk about this, much like wellness, self-care is an incredibly flexible term these days. You know, like you were just touching on Jenny, this basically encompasses any activity that people use to calm or heal or preserve themselves. But 
I think where this starts to be a really tricky tightrope is so much of what we call self-care today is really a far cry from a quote, active political warfare, end quote, Mm -hmm. which kind of brings me to the line between self-care and self-indulgence. Given what I know now about the origins of self-care, I am more inclined to think that spa days and shopping trips are self-indulgent and there is nothing wrong with that. I know I've said it before, but there is nothing wrong with having money. There's nothing wrong with giving yourself beautiful things. But the idea of looking after our needs like health care and human connection to me does sit at a very different place. And it's slippery. Like, what if my human connection with my bestie is what we get many petties? But I think that within culture, it's become very conflated. Yeah, and I also, sorry, sorry, I was going to say, I also think one of the things that's really tricky about that is that when we're when we're talking about self-care as shopping trips and you know spa days a that's only accessible to a very small margin of people mm-hmm. and b what we're really talking about i mean spa days sure you're getting massage it's like you know some deep relaxation okay but a like that's a lot of money mm-hmm. and you know it tends to be i mean some other research around, you know, for for example, shopping is that it just talks about it just being a dopamine hit, right? Is this deep self-care or is it like the same thing as counting the likes on your most recent post, right? Is it true self-care or is it the dopamine hit that you're getting because you are feeling bad and you decide to eat an entire sheet pan of brownies and you're getting this like dopamine sort of fix. Now, again, none of these things are necessarily wrong, but is it you know, if, if we're going to try to go back to kind of this original meaning of self-care, you know, being sort of like deep taking care of self, when we're looking at dopamine hits, we know that that's not deep taking care of self. That's like chasing the dragon, like more than anything. Well, I was just going to say is like, how different is it from, you know, a hit of heroin or having a third drink or, you know, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I think, you know, I think the hard part about this conversation too is, not just about how self-care has become this highly sort of capitalized, you know, capitalization, you know, thing, but it also becomes something by which women measure themselves against as another way that they are failing. You know, we are told that self-care looks like, you know, working out every day, getting eight hours of sleep, meditating in the morning, having a morning routine, making sure you're eating all bloody, bloody, blah, whatever. You're eating the rainbow. You're drinking half your weight in water. You're, you know, keep, keeping healthy boundaries. You've got boundaries with your phone. You've got all this kind of stuff. But then also lay on top of that. Also be successful in your job. Be a good mom. Be a good partner. Be a good, you know, uh, daughter. Be a good whoever it is. And, you know, when you start to stack up the expectations that women hold, you know, of ourselves and also like of each other, it literally is, I mean, I think somebody counted it up once and it was like equivalent to like a 28 hour work day. If you actually did all of the things and a great, (laughs) great bunch of those are the quote unquote self-care things Mm -hmm. so that you can be doing your part to make sure that you're healthy and that you can make sure that you're taking care of everybody else. And by everybody else, I mean, your immediate family. Rarely is there a conversation around how you're showing up in society or in your community, Mm -hmm. actually. Right. I don't know if you guys have seen this within the coaching world, but I actually have seen this other sort of side of self-care where they, um, and it's a pretty popular marketing strategy is where they say, 
you know, stuff like taking a shower and having a nice hot shower, that's not self-care. That's a basic human need. And then what they're doing is they're pushing their course, their whatever they sell as a way to truly tap into real Uh self-care. So it's like, it's this moving goalpost where you could feel fine. Like I feel pretty good about my day-to-day life, but it's that like, like, no, actually the things that you're doing that you feel good about, those are basic human needs. Those don't count. You need to not good enough. (laughs) Yeah. And I have this sort of untapped secret essentially that I will sell you so that you can feel X, Y, and Z. It's like being prescriptive, prescriptive privilege. Let's go back and totally. listen to that episode. But yeah. it, it's so interesting. It's like it can, it's a, because it is a marketing term to your entire point in its current state, it can be used and manipulated in different ways to achieve the target demographic that you are marketing to. Yeah. And I mean, I think too, a big part of this is sort of like, you know, people sort of talk about self-care as a way of addressing burnout right Mm -hmm. and so if you're burnt out you're a burnout woman you're a burnt out person of any shape size or orientation um you know the answer is to whatever meditate more you know pick up a you know start a creative endeavor go for walks in nature like and again all of these things are good for you but again I think this is where the concept in this current sort of permutation of self-care is failing is that you can't tell someone who's burnt out to do more things, even (laughs) if those things are good for them. If Uh someone is burnt out, it means they're burnt out. It means that the thing that is slowly but surely killing them is the thing that needs to change, not keep this up so that you can keep doing that super hard thing that's slowly killing you, right? The the conflation of self-care and so you can continue to be productive Mm -hmm. is a whole other kettle of fish, right? Where we've taken this idea of, you know, if you whatever, do all the things you're supposed to do in a day in order to quote unquote self-care for yourself, that's going to allow you to be more productive at work, a better mom. You'll be able to show up at that PTA meeting. You'll be able to be a better wife and like, I don't know what, right? Like, and so it's, it's externalizing again. It's it's self-care for the other is really Mm -hmm. what it turns into, right? If I can keep this machine going, then I can keep showing up in my prescribed ways as opposed to going like, wait a second, (laughs) maybe my job is terrible for me. Maybe I'm in a not great relationship. Maybe my mothering is totally untenable and I need support. I need childcare. I need someone to come and help me out with these children every once in a while because I'm sort of dying right now. Right. Like, and again, this goes back to community and social care. Yes, totally. (laughs) This is this individual solutions to collective issues. Yeah. What we need more than spa days as is a society that actually seeks to look after everyone rather this very individualistic, just like look after yourself better. If you did a better job of looking Mm -hmm. after yourself, you would be better. You would be fine. And I think for me, this is kind of really at the root of the crux of the problem. Um, What does it mean to care for yourself in a culture and society and within systems that are actively trying to break you down when Mm -hmm. we are left with not being cared for happening at an institutional level, cuts to healthcare, cuts to education, complete lack of mental health support at all levels, cuts to social programs, food programs. What when it's legislative neglect that's brought us to this place of not being cared for, what do the solutions look like? 
Right. And I mean, I can appreciate where, you know, people are like, well, they're not going to do it. So I will like, I, I can appreciate that line of thinking, but ultimately where does that get us? You know, this gets us to a place where we have people who can and they do. And then we have a lot of people who can't, and they're the ones who end up taking the brunt of this. And that's, it seems very unfair. I also think like, if we're looking at sort of the privilege points and the monetization side of it is it's just one more example of why going to a licensed therapist is going to be a better bang for your buck than mm-hmm. some online coach with like zero qualifications. P.S. It doesn't count if you took like another online coaches course, that's not a qualification <laughs> An accredited qualification from a yeah. real school or like a real educational institution, not like, because like Martha patented her own course. Like that's not what I'm talking about, but like it, it the, a therapist, a qualified therapist is going to help tease through a lot of the origins for that versus being that individualized sort of prescriptive, um, approach, which is what you see from coaches. They often, and we had background dialogue about this. Those online coaches often look at what has worked personally for them often in the recent Mm. future, right? Often it's something you'll see them come on and be like, I've just had this big shift and I need to share it with everybody. So it's something that's just happened and it's worked just for them. It's not Mm -hmm. actually something that is, um, there, there's not like a degree of like testing that's gone on. It's not necessarily, it's definitely not a validated approach or anything like that. It's, it's purely a self monetization process and they're earning a living and it is what it is from that side of it, but that's where the harm can come through. Um, and people can be sort of preyed on, right. Is this like over self monetization process that really seems very popular right now. Well, and also just the fact that some, you know, some coaches and I, you know, I genuinely think that there are coaches out there who have really good intentions. Oh, um, I think a lot of, of them have good intentions. I think that a lot of people have been led to believe that you know, just sort of like stepping out and running in their own course without any kind of necessary background or sort of like, you know, offering coaching that's sort of like therapy, but it's not. Um, I think they've got good intentions. I, I really genuinely do. Mm-hmm. I think the I agree. challenges is I think that they're preying on people's um, uh, lack of willingness to be a part of, you know, or to feel stigmatized by saying like, I'm going to a therapist. People go, Oh, what's wrong with you. Right. If you say I'm working with a coach, people Mm -hmm. think you're just trying to improve yourself. Right. Mm -hmm. If you say I'm going to a therapist, they're like, Oh, well, what's wrong. Right. Whereas like, that does not need to be the case whatsoever. Sure. Like sometimes you go to therapy because you're in a real crisis and that that's obviously the way it you know, you should be going to therapy if you're in crisis, but you know, oftentimes people are just kind of like, you know what, things are just not quite great. And I think I'd love to get some, you know, additional support. Maybe I'll go and get the support I need through, through therapy. Uh, I mean, obviously I'm a huge proponent of therapy. I'm in school to be a therapist. I've been in therapy for years and years, and I absolutely think it's the, the best thing ever. I see all kinds of people just throwing so much money at, all these things to try to quote unquote heal themselves. And I feel really bad. I feel mm-hmm. really bad about it because I just feel like I know what they're trying to do. They're just trying to feel better. Mm-hmm. And they've gotten some sort of idea that, you know, oh, maybe the next course, oh, maybe the next coach, oh, maybe the next retreat, oh, maybe the next product, oh, maybe the next mm-hmm. whatever it happens to be. Mm-hmm. It's tr- really tricky because you know, again, I'm in school. So I like read studies on this stuff literally all day long, but like, 
there's so much empirical evidence behind therapeutic modalities. Maybe mm-hmm. not like exactly the first one you try, maybe not exactly the first therapist you try, but ultimately it's, it's really effective. I don't know. I think, I think when it comes to this concept of self-care, are there ways that you can be caring for yourself that are good for yourself in the world? For sure. hundred percent, right? I'm not saying that everyone needs to become a martyr. Like in fact, the opposite. I really don't think that that's a good idea. Right. But I do think that it's important to know what the origins of all of this is and also the context in which it can be helpful, hopefully on a broader scale. Right. Mm -hmm. Totally. And I think that's the thing that really came up for me is like, yes, therapy is amazing. And if you can afford it and it's accessible for you, awesome. But how much does this like, you know, foot baths and face masks distract from the fact that so many people who need and could benefit from this will never access it because of limited time, limited resources. You know, how do you tell somebody who can't get basic medical care to, you know, take things to the next level? And I think, I wonder how much of this self-care, quote unquote, self-care conversation is actually a distraction from solving issues that need community care. A hundred percent. I mean, I think that for a lot of this, it's again, it's kind of like chasing that dopamine hit, right? Like Mm -hmm. if I'm feeling tired, what I should do is go and lie down for 20 minutes or go walk around outside or go drink a glass of water, right? What's easier getting on Instagram and scrolling mindlessly. That's Mm -hmm. easier. That is an easier thing to do. I get more immediate dopamine from that. I get more of like ding, ding, ding. That's huge. I think. Yes. Right. Because yeah. walking outside, you maybe don't feel good until after you get home. And that's 20 minutes later where you're going to feel that dopamine hit on Instagram within your first couple of seconds. Exactly. And what is Instagram telling me? <laughs> Probably not a lot that's necessarily very good for me if I'm feeling <laughs> in a reduced capacity in that moment. It's telling me mm-hmm. I should buy something. It's telling me that this woman is thinner than I am. She, this other lady's got a better blowout. Her kids look more well behaved than mine do. Whatever, you know, like her house mm-hmm. looks more fall perfect. Oh, happy fall equinox, by the way, everybody (laughs) special recording day, you know? And so I'm getting that dopamine hit, but ultimately is that actually like, which, you know, which, which, which wolf am I, am I, am I feeding? Right. Like Mm -hmm. that whole story about you've got two wolves, right? Which wolf am I feeding? I'm sure I'm getting the dopamine hit in the same way that like, if I really loved alcohol, which I don't, I don't drink at all. You know, I would go and have a glass of, I'd go have like a glass of wine, you know, bam, I get that immediate hit. So I think part of this too, is also just this like immediacy as opposed to like the small incremental change changes made over time are the things that actually accumulate to actually feeling better. We also seem like as a society, and I mean, we're Canadian, but I feel like this applies to most sort of westernized countries. We seem to feel like we have all the basics taken care of. Like, oh, we've got access to medical Mm -hmm. care, tick. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I mean, is it tick though? Like really when we look at it, if you needed to get into a family doctor today, would you be able to, (laughs) even if you have have a family doctor, would you be able to get into them today? Probably not. So like, Sure. Yes. Here in where we live, if we got hit by a car, we would a hundred percent get the care that we needed in that super acute situation. It wouldn't cost us anything financially. We wouldn't worry about the bankruptcy for the bills of the hospital. Sure. But like, 
if you had a UTI right this second, could you go get a prescription without waiting in a walking clinic for God knows how long, if the walking clinic's still taking patients? Probably not. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. We seem to think education tick. I mean, is it though? Like (laughs) is education fully accessible to absolutely everybody? And even if you are a privileged, um, someone with a good income in like an urban center, if you have a kid who's got any form of learning disability that needs to wait 18 months to be assessed, is it really accessible to that kid, Mm -hmm. even with all the means and you're waiting for, you know, the process, like, it's Mm -hmm. like kind of like easy to, I think we just assume, oh, healthcare tech education. So all of these things that from like the original, it sounds like, and Mm -hmm. I am definitely no expert even remotely in civil rights, uh, within the States and, and, you know, black rights movement or anything like that. But like, they were looking at stuff like, okay, so you can't see a doctor. Let's help you see a doctor. And we sort of Mm -hmm. seem to feel like that's not a problem right now. Like, but Mm -hmm. is it, it may not be a problem for the same reason, but it's totally still a problem to a Mm -hmm. degree. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, like, it'd be interesting to see, because I heard the same, listen to the same podcast of you as you would be really interesting to see like an itemized list of like, did they have like any documented sort of strategy or plans or anything that you found Annika? Like, I'd be really curious to hear like what their original take on the action side of this was like, I'd love to see those things and see like, do we actually have all that at reasonable access to the population right now? Well, right. And I think this is what's really interesting is it's really easy for us to think like, oh, you know, things were so different then, right? To your point, like, yes, were they looking at different things for different reasons or the same things for different reasons? Yes. Is it that different? No. And I think ultimately it, it boiled down to this. We have to look after ourselves and each other. And I feel like that's the piece that's kind of missing now. It's, that deep community. Yeah. 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 Like we're, like we're legitimately in this together. Like mm-hmm. let's link arms. Totally. Yeah. Totally. I mean, you look at things like this is one of the things that I found really interesting. And for further reading, uh, Alondra Nelson wrote a book called Body and Soul. Very, very interesting. But she talks about the Black Community Survival Conference in Oakland in 1972. It was a, a rally, a street fair and a block party. So, you know, there's speeches, but there's also information about the party's free community service programs. Right. It was also, mm. also called a survival conference. <laughs> Right. They were literally, they were literally called survival programs. Wow. Right. I mean, can you imagine being in a community and having no acknowledgement that lead poisoning is ravaging your community? No No acknowledgement, nobody to treat it, nobody to, there's nothing. It's just, let's pretend this doesn't exist as you watch the people around you fall apart. And like a survival conference, like, it's not like we're talking about like a known genocide and you're getting gathering the survivors from like some like war torn country. Right. In the seventies. I was just going to say, it's not even like it was not 1948. My husband was alive (laughs) when this was happening. (laughs) Like, jeez. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. You need to tell us about it. I'm just, the name just was like, what the Okay. No, please carry on. Well, and I mean, this is what's so interesting, right? Is, you know, as the kind of quote unquote war on poverty ramped up and then ramped back down again, what, you know, the Black Panther Party is left with is like, how do we 
you know, there's surveillance, there's harassment against black people at the hands of police. Sound familiar? Not again, Mm -hmm. like the more things change, the more they stay the same. So Mm -hmm. the clinics were actively recruiting nurses, doctors, students, um, just to literally provide basic amenities and preventative care. Wow. Gosh, I had no idea. I know, right? Not that I, I mean, I don't want to pretend that I'm like super savvy on like political events or anything. Cause I'm definitely not, but like, I genuinely had no idea that in the seventies, this was such a big, big thing in the States. Was this just in the States or did this leak through into Canada too? I mean, the, the black Panther party was primarily a, a U.S. thing. And I think, Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. I forgot we were talking about that. That's of some yeah, yeah, of yeah. our gap too in Canada. Canada loves to just pretend there was never any racism. So well, that's why I was asking. <laughs> we don't learn like, about oh, those things. Were we perfect in the seventies? <laughs> Always know. perfectly. Absolutely. Just don't talk yeah. to any indigenous people. And we were oh, gosh. gosh, right. And, but that's the thing, right? It's, I mean, I hate to say, you know, every country finds a way to, do this but unfortunately that's what we see this is what comes with so many of the problems of colonialism this is what comes with so many of that really long history of community disruption via things like slavery you know oh yeah and like going back like since the dawn of time right like as humans we've always loved to like conquer other humans so Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely right so yeah good times (laughs) So, so so interesting. So like basically, uh, all self self-care really is like, is legitimately at its origins, basic human rights and, and daily necessities. Right. And then we made it like all of this fluffy stuff. And then in some places we've taken that away and again and made it political again. And now it's like literally means nothing because it means everything at the same time. (laughs) Did I summarize that? Well, Yeah. So I guess, I guess my question then in terms of like a, how do we move forward from, from this, we have this understanding we still have. So like, let's just even take the population of sort of like, you know, women, let's just take that. Right. We have a population of women who uh, are generally speaking burnt out. They are pulling double duty, right? Sometimes second and sometimes third shift at home. Um, we have all kinds of unprecedented pressures. We have a whole bunch of mothers who are dealing with the fallout of having their kids, like having be COVID kids for two years, right? Like that was something mm-hmm, I was discussing sure. today. Um, and we have people who are so overdrawn that, and also so lacking in community, especially in a post-COVID world, mm-hmm. that the concept of being able to get to a place where you can show up for other people or advocate for community care or advocate for systemic change seems like walking on the moon. It just seems so outside of anything that's possible because we're just trying to sort of get through the day and try to manage what it is that we are, you know, trying to manage with, with right now. What do we do in terms of like, I guess the question becomes, how do we move, how do we move people out of that space or how do we shift things in order to be able to have more people join this sort of idea of, of community care, of being able to show up for other people, you know, like for example, a friend of ours was in a bad bike accident at the beginning of the summer and I like made them a casserole and like took it over. And this is, I'm not patting myself on the back. The reason why I did this is because when my dad died, 
my whole tiny village that I grew up in, I was 20, literally showed up with all the food. My whole fridge and my whole freezer was packed with casseroles and pastas and meat pies and all of the things. Because at the very least, when someone's struggling, you feed them, right? Mm -hmm. I wonder, like, do people, is that a thing? Do you know what I'm saying? Like when people can recognize a, we don't, we're not very good at saying I'm struggling. So that's the thing. Mm -hmm. But when someone's struggling, do we even know at this point how to show up for people in a community care oriented way? Or is that something that's lost? You know, like, these are just some of the questions I have around. Mm -hmm. We've taken self-care to this hyper-capitalistic, you know, by yourself, like a (laughs) scented, you know, (laughs) candle and a $20 face mask and like, you know, drink a half bottle of wine and call it self-care when you're sitting by yourself in your home, in your living room, mm-hmm. instead of saying, Hey, everybody, what can we, you know, we know that connection is imperative. Mm-hmm. I don't know what, do, like Annika, where do we go from here? <laughs> solve some my, thoughts. <laughs> solve my problems. <laughs> well, I mean, if I could do that, I mean, hmm. I wouldn't be in an existential crisis. No, I'm just kidding. Right, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I still would be. I live in this world. Uh, I think a couple of things. One, I think as much as like, I know a lot of people will roll their eyes when they say this, but the political scientist in me just comes back to like, we actually have to vote for people who are going to take this stuff seriously. Right. I don't, I don't think we can undercut how significant to some families, the idea of basic dental coverage for families right. is going to be, that yep. is an institutional change that was pushed by people who were elected Right. I mean, right. again, I know it's really easy. We That doesn't solve all our problems in a lot of cases. Sometimes it creates more, but mm-hmm. you know, I think these are conversations we must be having at a political level. I will just use this as a plug. Almost everyone in Canada has municipal elections coming up at some point. These are conversations to be having. I realize municipal elections are like the least sexy of all elections, but this is where things like funding for schools, funding or not funding for police departments comes Mm -hmm. from, it literally happens at this level. So Mm -hmm. if we care about this, this is an important time for us to show up and act like we care about it. Mm -hmm. So that's one piece. And then the other piece, I think kind of to what you were touching on Lee is, you know, I think we forget that community care is reciprocally good. Mm-hmm. So I think the idea is it feels like, oh God, like I am so burnt out. I don't have anything in me. I just need to like sit on my couch and drink half a bottle of wine. When actually, if I can like call my friend whose house I can go over to in my sweatpants and mm-hmm. sit on her couch and have a conversation with her, that's actually going to fill me up a million times more than sitting alone in my house with Netflix. True, yeah. true, true that, true that, true that. I'm here for that plan. That's a great idea. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's yeah. a really good point about the municipal elections also, because that looks at your community structure. So like your community centers in the area that I live, like every community center over time is being completely rebuilt, like from the ground up. And it's fantastic. Like they're really mm-hmm. great places that offer the most affordable. It's definitely not um, affordable for everybody, but the most affordable programs for kids, the most accessible stuff. Um, a lot of them have public health mm-hmm. Um like hubs in them. So moms can come with their babies. I think all that stuff's running again. 
So like new moms connection is a huge thing, right? Um, Mm -hmm. you can bring your babies, you can get them weighed. You can get like breastfeeding help, bottle feeding help. Like, just like talk about like, just feel normal again. Cause so many things that happen when you're a new mom, just feel like you're the only one. And it's cause like, you've done something wrong that your kid doesn't like sleep or whatever. And it's just mm-hmm. like, no, babies don't sleep. And you just need to hear other people talk about how like they're fucking tired too. So I think mm-hmm. like, there's a lot of, so looking at those community supports through municipal elections is huge. Cause most of them mm-hmm. should forecast their sort of like what they say they're going to do. And I know it's hard because well, what they actually do and what they say they're going to do are usually not. But if they're not saying it, that's a red But if they're not, like, even, if they're not saying even saying it, it <laughs> they definitely won't even maybe try and do it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's a really good point. Community centers in a lot of communities are also the only places that have free open spaces. You can, mm-hmm. you can go to a library. <clears throat> it is always free. Yeah. I love me a library. Gosh, no, so great libraries were like a, a true savior for me when my kids were really little we used to go to the library mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. minimally once a week if not twice a week and these have free programs running through yes. the libraries yep yeah. yeah. So uh, I think these are the pieces that if we really want to make a shift, if we really want to make a change away from foot baths and face masks, this is, this is a piece of how we do that. And again, I know for like the average person who's feeling beyond stretched and beyond burnt out, the idea of like volunteering any time to do anything feels daunting or impossible. But if you have any capacity, you know, this is how you can show up with that in some in some way or another. Totally. Um, so good. Such, such helpful insight. So, uh, unless there's any other, uh, things we want to munch on a little bit, um, today, I have a, one of my favorite quotes I stumbled across while researching this episode, um, that I'll close with, uh, it's a great article, uh, from Catherine Newman, Bremang. Uh, I'll link it in the show notes if anybody wants to read it because it's all sassy like this. But um, quote, self-care cannot be an act of political warfare if the only battle you're waging is against your frown lines with a $110 oh. moisturizer. Ooh, <laughs> I am here for that. That was good. That was yeah. really good. Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah. So there you go. Self-care, community care. The end. <laughs> so much for listening to meet me in the middle. We really appreciate your support. And if you could do us a big favor and subscribe and share this podcast, it would mean the world to us.